Welcome to episode 47 of Primary Care Update. I'm Mark A. Bell, family physician and professor at the University of Georgia and editor-in-chief of Essential Evidence Plus. I'm John Hickner, family physician and editor-in-chief of the Journal of Family Practice. Hi, I'm Henry Barry, a family physician and one of the co-founders of InfoPoems. We're recording the day after Mother's Day, and I suspect that this was a challenging Mother's Day for many people, and I think we all look forward to the time when we can give more than virtual hugs. Well, thanks, Henry. Nice. Um, Well-spoken. On this podcast, we highlight poems, which stands for Patient-Oriented Evidence That Matters. If you want all of the poems, subscribe to Essential Evidence, where you get a poem daily, plus a great primary care reference with over 800 disease and symptom chapters and thousands of interactive decision support tools. Check it out at EssentialEvidencePlus.com. The opinions expressed on Primary Care Update are those of the commentators, and this podcast doesn't represent medical advice or the endorsement of any product. This week, we discuss salivary testing for COVID, COVID immunity, guidelines for managing patients with degenerative joint disease, and the use of old forms of insulin in managing patients with type 2 diabetes. And uh, Henry, I think this week you were going to start us off with a quote. Yeah, and this is actually triggered by uh, your discussion of uh, Pierre Abelard a couple of episodes ago. I am not going to try the the Latin version of this because uh, I will just butcher it. But the translation is uh, constant and frequent questioning is the first key to wisdom. For through doubting, we are led to inquire, and by inquiry, we perceive the truth. Nice. Well, I had four years of high school Latin, which was a complete waste of my time, I think. But my uh, parents, who were German immigrants in Germany at the time, you had to take Latin in high school and gymnasium in order to go to medical school. And planning ahead like my parents and knowing that I would have to contractually obligated to be a doctor, they um, made me take Latin in, in high school because they assumed it must be the same here. You had to get Latin to get into medical school. So anyway, um, dubitando, enim, ad, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we're going to start off with a couple of COVID-related poems. And the first one, saliva may be a better source for SARS-CoV-2 samples than nasopharyngeal swabs. It's from Wiley and colleagues, and it was a, on a preprint server. Uh, we usually do nasopharyngeal swabs to sample for respiratory viruses, but recent studies have reported similar sensitivity for the detection of the virus in saliva. This was a study from Yale University, and they took paired saliva samples with NP swabs from 29 patients every three days for a total of 121 samples. So they took a paired NP swab and saliva. They found that the viral titers were higher in saliva there were fewer false negatives. So fewer cases where somebody actually was later found to have the virus, but they had an initially negative sample. Total of eight patients were negative using the NP swab, but positive using saliva. Only three were positive using NP, but negative using saliva. So saliva was more sensitive. In five patients, NP swabs went from negative to positive over time, but this didn't occur in the saliva of any patients. So it was more consistent. They also tested uh, 98 asymptomatic healthcare workers, and they detected the virus in the saliva of two who were repeatedly negative by their NP swab. Obviously, saliva samples are attractive to us because they can be self-collected and don't require personal protective equipment. Um, it's, It's worth noting Rutgers University has also been working on this technology. They actually have a 
uh, emergency use authorization from the FDA uh, for home collection of saliva for PCR testing in their laboratory. Um, and the EUA is only for their lab, um, but it's using standard PCR uh, techniques. The FDA documents that I reviewed, so I found their EUA online, and basically there was perfect correlation. Uh, and there was only 60 samples, but there was perfect correlation. Uh, 30 that were positive by NP were positive by saliva. 30 negative by saliva were negative by NP. So um, pretty good uh, correlation there and, and certainly may expand the options for, for testing for us. John, any comments? Yes. As we discussed just before the podcast, this could really be a game changer in terms of collecting samples because now we have so many different viral tests that we can do. So this would make it so much more convenient. I'm even thinking of pertussis, for example. Uh, patients don't like the na nasal pharyngeal swab. So I think this could be a real game changer across the board if this is verified for other viruses as well. Yeah, it, may, it does make me think, you know, we're currently suspended our study that we're doing where we're uh, gathering data on 40 viral and bacterial pathogens in patients with acute respiratory infection. We had to suspend it due to lack of PPE. It makes me wonder what other viral and bacterial pathogens could we get by saliva rather than having to do the NP swab? Um, I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that, but it's, it's something we're going to be looking into. Henry. Yeah, it's certainly readily available. Most people can provide that much more easily than, say, a deep chest sputum sample. And as you pointed out, the nasopharyngeal swabs are really obnoxious and annoying. Um, I believe that people are using saliva for other purposes. So, for example, to measure interleukins and other inflammatory or stress biomarkers. And so this may be the wave of the future. And in story, seeing this, it reminded me, Back in 1985, I spent a month in China as part of a scientific exchange program, and we visited healthcare facilities, clinics, and hospitals and the like. And I can remember in the hallways and waiting rooms and outside of patients' rooms, there would be signs, and the English translation was, please for to remember not to spit. <laughs> Well, we, we may have to remember how to spit in the, in the future for this. Thanks, Henry. Um, so the next uh, discussion is about uh, SARS-CoV-2 infection confers humoral immunity in at least 99% of patients. And so this is, again, from a preprint server. And, you know, we do vet these as carefully as we can. And, you know, this one is from Yale University, I'm sorry, from ICANN School of Medicine. I think it's affiliated with Columbia, New York. Um, and... What they did was they identified 624 patients who had previous PCR-confirmed uh, COVID-19 infection, and they were volunteering to provide convalescent sera for therapy. At the initial testing, so they were checking these people, okay, do they have enough antibodies? So at the initial testing, which was fairly soon after recovery, like a week or 10 days after recovery, 82% were already strongly positive, 7% weakly positive. 11% were negative. The 113 who were initially weakly positive or negative were asked to return a couple of weeks later, about half returned, 64 of them. And at that time, 57 of those 64 had become strongly positive, four were still weakly positive, and three were negative. So only three out of the original 624 <clears throat> were negative, 
about four weeks, four to six weeks after their uh, symptom onset. And so uh, the median duration from onset of symptoms to development of IgG antibodies was 24 days. The range was seven to 50 days. So what this suggests is, is you know, provisionally good news in that about 99% of the patients that they studied developed a strong antibody response. In theory, and this is still in theory, it should provide some degree of protection against reinfection, at least in the short term. And it suggests that we should, if we're testing for IgG, we need to wait probably three or four weeks after the onset of symptoms before we test. And if it's negative, test again in a couple of weeks. Henry? Yeah, I agree that this should really give us some some hope that uh, that a recent infection provides uh, short-term protection, especially when we combine this with some of the preliminary data we've seen on use of convalescent serum. I suspect that like many things, we have much more to learn as time passes though. Yeah, I, I agree, John. I think we're all hoping that immunity lasts longer than a few months, and it seems highly probable unless there's huge antigenic drift for COVID-19, and we don't know about that yet. But the media has been full of uh, reports suggesting that immunity may not be long-lasting. So we'll have to wait and see, but I sure hope this is borne out to be true. Yep, fully agreed. All right, Henry, it's time for the quiz. Yeah, so our quiz asks, which statement about coronaviruses is false? One, they are living microbes that reproduce through mitosis. Two, they were first discovered in 1964 by a high school dropout. Three, they cause a wide array of respiratory ailments. Four, they infect many animals but have never been found in fish. Stay tuned. All right. Thanks, Henry. And uh, we're going to turn back to you because it's time for your poem. We're going to move on to um, uh, degenerative joint disease, uh, and it's a new guideline from the ACR. Yeah, so the American College of Rheumatology and the Arthritis Foundation issued a guideline that largely asks the question, what are the key approaches to managing our patients who suffer from degenerative joint disease involving um, major joints, knees, hips, hands? So uh, they assembled a guideline development panel. Unfortunately, many of the individuals had ties to industry, but they did a pretty decent job. They had an explicit process. They identified what the key questions were. Uh, they actually conducted their own systematic literature reviews, which is a good thing and maybe a bad thing. The good thing is that they did the work. The bad thing is that some of their recommendations are not necessarily in concordance with some of the systematic reviews that we've reviewed previously. And we'll, I'll touch on that in just a, a little bit. Um, what they ended up doing is after they generated all of this information and a synthesis, they then voted. And so if they, they in order for something to pass muster, at least 70% of the voting panel members had to um, agree. And so, um, and then depending on the strength of the recommendation of, of the underlying evidence, they either made it a strong or a conditional set of recommendations. Okay. So they made strong recommendations in favor of a comprehensive approach, exercise, self-efficacy programs, weight loss, Tai Chi, and using assistive devices like canes and braces and splints and the like. They also 
made strong recommendations in favor of using topical and oral anti-inflammatory agents for uh, knees and intraarticular steroid injections for knees and hips. And this is one of the places where there's a little bit of divergence. They didn't really um, comment that this is really only for short-term symptom relief. And we've reviewed these data in the past, and most of the systematic reviews show that the intraarticular steroids, after about six months, their, their beneficial effect are gone. And so they didn't really address that explicitly. Um, they also made some conditional recommendations in favor of using taping and other kinds of splints, and then comfort measures like Tylenol and Tramadol, uh, Tramadol and Duloxetine. And then they made this really curious conditional recommendation in favor of using chondroitin for hands, but then later on, they made a conditional recommendation against chondroitin for hands. So I don't understand. I, I, I could not find anything in there that would reconcile that discrepancy. <laughs> so anyway, they did make uh, uh, other recommendations against stuff that we've also talked about, electrical nerve stimulation, biphosphonates, bisphosphonates, uh, glucosamine, hydroxychloroquine, stem cell injections, uh, platelet-rich plasma injections. So there were a number of things that they, um, that they told us that were not effective. And so what this tells me is that we've got lots of options that can help patients to try to be more comfortable. And a lot of it is the stuff that's our bread and butter. You know, let's maintain some decent flexibility and strength and help them with um, orthotic devices that might help to offload painful joints. And, and those are the things that I think will help with the function and maybe to some extent the progression of, um, of the arthritis. The, the big problem that we have is that there's just a lot of research still to be done on the things that actually prevent the long-term ramifications. Yeah. You know, this, uh, I thought it was a, it was a decent guideline and, uh, it was striking to me how they recommended against platelet-rich plasma and synvisc and, you know, hyaluronic acid injections, which the orthopedic surgeons tend to love and are really pushing, and in the absence of a lot of really good information out there. And, you know, in the SYNVISC in particular, if you look at all of the data, all of the published trials, it looks pretty good. But if you limit it to those that are properly controlled with a, a, a true sham injection and where they, you know, do their best to mask the outcome assessors and the patients, uh, there's very, very little, if any, benefit and, and some, and actually some harms seen. So uh, I thought that was interesting. And I think the platelet-rich plasma, there's just been very few good studies. That's almost more of an insufficient evidence kind of uh, recommendation. John? You hit the nail on the head, Mark. There have been so many trials of so many different agents injected into joints. I've become a student of this over the last few years. And the pattern repeats itself. That is that initial case series or poorly designed trials show some effect. And then when you look at the really well-designed randomized controlled trials, there's no effect or a minimal effect. Uh, so these injections, one really has to be careful about. In fact, I would say the only thing probably worth trying are the old-fashioned corticosteroids. Yeah. And I think there, when I look at the Cochrane review, the benefit is pretty substantial in the first two weeks or so after the injection. And then it kind of tapers off. And a month after the injection, it's uh, the some benefit. Two months later, there's very little. 
So really that benefit tapers off pretty quickly. And uh, I think it can be useful situationally. So someone, um, you know, I've had them in my knee before I went to Europe for uh, 10 days where I knew I'd be walking, you know, five to 10 miles a day. And and then that was helpful, but I re- I, I went into it fully realizing it wouldn't be, you know, helping me a month later, probably. All right. Good, uh, good poem. And um, John, it's your turn. We're going to learn about uh, insulins. Yes, an important topic and the clinical question answered in this poem is this. Is there a difference in the long-term morbidity and mortality in adults with type 2 diabetes who are treated with human insulin versus analog insulins? This was published by Neugenbauer and colleagues in JAMA Network Open in 2020, not long ago. Now, this is a cohort study uh, sponsored by government agency, the United States government, The investigators analyzed data from four large integrated healthcare delivery systems in the United States, identifying adults who had filled a first insulin prescription from January of 2005 through December of 2013. They looked at patients who were continuously treated with the same insulin therapy, which was determined by prescription refill dates. And they identified a total of uh, 127,600 participants who met this eligibility criteria, which included, of course, having type 2 diabetes and a known initial date of insulin therapy. The outcomes were assessed using vital statistics from hospital records, state registries, and national registries, so a fairly thorough ascertainment of the outcomes. They also adjusted for potential confounders, including patient demographics, comorbid conditions, medication use, smoking, and socioeconomic variables, so a pretty careful adjustment. In the adjusted analysis, there were no significant difference in all-cause mortality, mortality due to cardiovascular disease, myocardial infarction, and congestive heart failure hospitalization, whether patients were given the new and expensive analog insulins or human insulin. So the bottom line is that the study found no differences in long-term important patient-oriented outcomes between the human and analog insulins in adults with type 2 diabetes. We reviewed another recent study done at Kaiser that also found actually a slight advantage of human compared to analog long-acting insulins in the incidence of severe hypoglycemia. So The best evidence we have shows no proven benefit to using these more expensive analog insulins instead of the older human insulins. And there is potential harm, of course, because the higher cost of the analog insulins may cause patients to underdose or not take insulin at all. Today, I checked this morning, GoodRx lists a dizzying 25 different insulins. Do you believe that now? Wow. Ranging in costs from $134 per month to $1,122 a month. On average, the analog insulins are three times more expensive than human NPH type insulins. So it's time to either bring the cost of those analogs way down to where they belong or go back to good old NPH. I, was, I remember those days too. <laughs> yeah. The lente, ultra lente and NPH, something like that. That is a big difference in cost. Henry, any thoughts? Yeah. So John, you touched on the fact that this is a cohort study and so it's got many limitations. And while they tried to take into account many other factors that might explain the outcome, they could only take into account the things that they know. 
Um, the the good thing is that we're seeing some consistency across studies. And so you mentioned the Kaiser study. Our very first podcast, we actually reviewed a paper that compared um, NPH and the analog insulins that also showed fewer emergency room visits and hospital um, admissions. So, so there's probably something to this. And then I just want to take a, this as an opportunity to re- remind people, this was a, in patients with type 2 diabetes. And the first thing is that we have no data at all that insulin improves outcomes in patients with type 2 diabetes. That we also have uh, that the data on tight control is that it's no better than just okay control. So, uh, and it's more likely to cause harms, including severe hypoglycemia. And that we have some drug classes that actually have been shown to improve outcomes, at least in high risk groups. And I'm thinking about the GLP 1 agonists and the SGLT2 inhibitors. And the data on metformin as a foundational study, uh, a foundational medication, at some point we'll probably want to talk about and revisit those data because I think that's probably a shaky foundation. Yeah, we've been looking at the metformin data and um, the UK, it was a UKPDS trial, I think, where yeah. it was. Um, In 98. And, yeah, it's a, it's a relatively small sample. And I think that with these newer agents, you know, they're more expensive, but they do seem to have benefits on top of what metformin can provide. And of course, the um, insulins, uh, another issue with uh, type 2 diabetes for patients not taking insulin is that there have been a number of studies, about eight or nine studies, I think, showing that you don't need to be monitoring uh, fast the blood sugar in the morning or several times a day in these patients. They should have a monitor. They should know how to use it when they're sick or feel bad, but it's not routine monitoring doesn't improve any outcomes. So we're going to move on to the quiz answer, Henry. Yeah. So the question was, which statement about coronaviruses is false? One, they are living microbes that reproduce through mitosis. Two, they were first discovered in 1964 by a high school dropout. Three, they cause a wide array of respiratory ailments. Four, they infect many animals but have never been found in fish. So I think it's fitting that we raise this question on the day after Mother's Day. Uh, According to an article um, on April 18th uh, this year in National Geographic, uh, coronaviruses were first discovered by June Dalziel Almeida. She was actually a high school dropout who started working as a lab technician in a hospital in Glasgow. And it was there that she learned how to use a regular old light microscope. She got married, had a kid, and eventually moved to Toronto, where she learned how to use an electron microscope. There, she actually developed some new techniques and developed uh, and published several papers that described the structures of viruses that had never been seen before. So, for example, she was the very first person to see the rubella virus, and she was the first to characterize the presence of the two distinct antigens on the hepatitis B virus. She was then recruited to London at uh, the St. Thomas Hospital Medical School, which, by the way, is where Boris Johnson was recently hospitalized. Uh, She was given some samples from uh, Northern England from a child who had this unidentified um, flu-like illness, and she applied her new techniques and in 1964 saw the virus and its halo-like structure that gave it that name. And so the good news is that based on all of this great work, 
work that she was doing and these publications, she was she earned her doctor of science degree a couple of years later. Um, I really encourage you to look up her obituary. She died in 2007. She had a remarkable career. Uh, you can read her obituary in the British Medical Journal to learn more about this really remarkable um, scientist. So a little bit more. The coronaviruses are enveloped, single-stranded RNA viruses that cause multiple different respiratory illnesses. We've seen them cause anything from the common cold to SARS, MERS, and now the COVID-19. Um, they've been found in multiple animals animal species, but Science Magazine uh, reports that it has never been found in fish. And then the question as to whether or not any virus at all is alive or not depends on what criteria that are used. But the consensus is that viruses have spent billions of years perfecting the art of surviving without actually being alive. So they basically reproduce by hijacking infected cells and to and get those cells to create the copies of the virus. So the incorrect answer is that they are living microbes that reproduce through mitosis. All right. Well, I, I, I always learn something, Henry. I did not know they were not in fish. I'm not sure I care, but I, now I know that. <laughs> well, it, it may be a that. reflection of that we just don't study fish, or maybe they have fewer interactions with other animal species. Lucky fish. Lucky fish. Okay. So uh, we're going to close with a literary recommendation from Dr. Hickner. Henry, you are just a wealth of information. Thank you very much. <laughs> Now, I'm trying to remediate my deficit in classics education, so I recently read The Entire Republic by Plato. I'm giving a lukewarm recommendation to Plato's Republic. Lukewarm for the work that founded Western philosophy? Read it, and you will understand the reason for my less-than-enthusiastic recommendation. That is, if you can even make it through this tome. While certain sections are immensely important, such as The Shadows in the Cave Passage, in much of the Republic, Socrates and his colleagues drone on about any number of inane subjects, all supposedly in pursuit of defining justice in the ideal city-state. Reading the Cliff Notes version is sufficient for most of us. On the other hand, you may want to read a more contemporary explication of the city-state by none other than Chicago's former mayor, Rahm Emanuel, called the Nation City, Why Mayors Are Now Running the World. Finally, uh, Plato and Socrates would both approve of Henry's skeptical quotation given at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I know you must appreciate Rom because he was your mayor. You were the chair of family medicine at University of Illinois, Chicago. And um, so did you ever have a chance to meet uh, Mayor Emanuel? Never met him, but he was a colorful figure, no doubt about it, and That's controversial. For sure. That's for sure. Yeah, quite an interesting family. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, thanks you guys for your uh, you know wisdom and commentary, and um, we will talk to you next week with another primary care update.